the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Yes, it is. And if it's Wednesday, we are delighted and privileged and honored because we get to hear from the congressman representing Arizona's 6th Congressional District, my man, David Schweiker. David, how are you, sir? You know, it's just getting ready for the chaos. Let me ask you about that chaos before we get into other chaos. <laughs> let's move. Let's move from the personal well, to the global. Let's start small here, David. At your, how do you survive woke relatives? <laughs> well, I was just close to that, and maybe that. I, the question I wanted to ask you was: at your table, I mean, you're obviously a very well-known uh, conservative. At your table, uh, Thanksgiving table, is there a unanimity of conservative opinion, or do you have uh, dissidents around your tables? And how do you handle it? If the okay, second, um, if the second, how do you handle it? My Arizona family are traditional conservatives. They're just that they're they're you know my brother, my sister, the family, um, all are you know the entire family is as quirky as can be, and they all are just um, you know straight up people. So it makes family get together easy. Aha. Uh-huh. Okay. Um, but now, and I also so have a tradition. So we will be in the Fountain Hills Thanksgiving Parade tomorrow. I've been in every parade for like the last 34 years. Fun. Since, since we started it. Yeah. And then I will, um, for the last 20 or so years, get in the car and drive to Big Bear, California to go be with my birth mother's family. Oh, okay. Okay. You know, you know, years ago, I'm an adopted Yeah, yeah, no, that's lovely. Ago, you know I didn't know that. That is lovely. And I, I yeah. have two six-foot-tall, blonde half-sisters. <laughs> yeah, we all look just like each other. Yeah, right. Um, <laughs> but, but it's wonderful, and it's good for Olivia, you know, because we haven't seen each other for the last two years because of the craziness and then the snowstorm two years ago. Now, that one gets a little trickier because both are functioning school teachers in California. Mm. Mm. And one's a social worker, so it's fascinating. As she says, the last 10 years of being a social worker in Southern California, she has moved much more conservative, realizing that all the social programs and things they were trying to do to help people have actually made things worse. I think you Um, and I should create a law, the Schweikert-Liebson law. Those involved in helping people professionally over time will become conservative. There is something to There is. I think Um, there is. Yeah. Yeah, and, and, and it doesn't mean lack of compassion. You've got to be very careful because some of the left um, label conservatism as not empathetic and compassionate. I'll make it it's just the opposite. Um, like the Democrats' big social spending bill, huge amount of money in monthly payments, but they actually set it up so you can get the monthly payments. And not have to work, yeah. not have to look for job training, not have to do anything. Yeah. And the academic papers say it will actually make poor people poorer yep. because it's disassociating the value of gaining skills and working. That at the end of the decade, even though they've been getting all these transfer payments, the Democrats will have made poor people poorer. 
That's yeah. conservatism, understanding what it is, the human nature and the dignity of family and work. Um, and so you, you and I come from a school, you and I come from a school of thought, which used to be universally understood, that those of us that actually want to put the poor in the middle class and make the middle class richer is the, are, are the compassionate ones. Those that want to have the middle class become poor, turn the rich into the middle class, and keep the poor dependent on government until they can no longer subsist on their own whatsoever, that in the new dictionary is compassion. I'm having none of it. You're having none of it. Yeah, you say that actually really well. Um, The only, because it's our tradition, the only part you're not cynical enough is it's not only keeping them... (laughs) Oh, that tradition, yes, okay, right, 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 okay, yes. It's... Is keeping them dependent on Democrat control of government. Fair enough. Fair enough. That I, I think that's absolutely true. But your tables, it sounds like uh, it sounds it sounds like to me that your tables are, are fairly oh, are fairly pacific. It, 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 uh, so I have a brother-in-law. Yeah. From my he's a like a deputy captain on a fireboat in Long Beach. Great human being, funny, smart, resourceful. Big union guy, the firefighters union, and hearing the story. And so he and I will talk about the unfunded liabilities of their pension. Sure, yeah. No, I was going to, yeah, and that's an he, issue. And it's, so, and it's fascinating. He will say, yes, I know that's a huge problem. I know this, that, and that's why the day I retire, I'm moving to Arizona. Right. So I have a bit more affordable cost of living in case all these California pensions blow up on them. Right. So, I mean, it, 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 even, even the union guys understand they're living sort of on a razor's edge. Yeah, yeah. They're they're they're, they're buying on time is what they're doing, uh, and it's not their doing. I I don't mean it. I don't mean it as critical of them. I mean it as critical of their leadership. But it does go to something I did also want to ask you about. Uh, the president gave a speech what yesterday on the economy. You are highlighting some work out of AEI on some new survey information from the American Enterprise Institute recently. We are facing a crisis, whether the Biden administration wants to admit it or not, aren't we? We're facing lots of crises. Let me let me reframe Which the question, one? Judge. We are facing a massive economic crisis, <laughs> notwithstanding well, what the president says, aren't we? Look, um, like today's um, unemployment number is absolutely terrific. But it's dishonest to get too excited because the labor force participation is still only at 61.6, functionally meaning that the number of Americans participating in the economy is pretty much the same as it was a year ago. So, you know, everyone gets excited saying, hey, look at how few people are looking for a job. And the second half of that is, hey, Look at how few people are looking for a job. This is a problem because there's lots of folks who should be Mm -hmm. in the labor force. Well, that's right. There's still 2 million people or so, as I recall. dramatically higher. Um, Okay, fair enough. Fair enough. Um, Remember, and there's some weird math, and and we could use your entire show to do it intellectual honesty. Um, The number of individuals who have stepped up and done things like taken early retirement. Yeah. Could be as high as 4 million beyond what was expected. Okay. Um, the number of young people, particularly young males, who just aren't even looking. They have just, they don't exist in the data. So it's easy to have an incredibly low unemployment rate when lots of folks who should be looking 
should be accepting job offers don't exist in looking a, 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 in the tables in the data set. You and I uh, keep uh, promising or threatening, I'm not sure which, to have a really long discussion on that animal. And uh, as soon as you have uh, a little time, perhaps after the holiday season, I'd love to have you and do a show for an hour with you in, in studio on that yeah, very issue. And, you can even bring Olivia. Like three people, there'll be like three people left listening, but it's actually important. And, and you, you need to think of it in a bigger picture. There's a number of things going on in society of, you know, young males not graduating college, mm-hmm. even though they started. Right. Um, the lack of marriage formation because of the disconnect of marriageable males for all these uh, all these young ladies, females, that are graduating college. Young so men there's, addicted there's to painkillers. Well, and so you go up and down. Yep. Uh, now, there are some things I'm hopeful about. Uh-huh. We're trying to get our head around all the individuals who look like they're trying to start micro-business. Right. You know, a business in their basement, their back bedroom, in their garage. We still don't have our heads around what that is, but we know business filings, people recording you know, business names and those things has really shot up in the last 18 months. Mm-hmm. That could be hopeful to the economy if we would get the tax system and regulatory system right to help them grow. But those micro-businesses are wonderful, but they don't necessarily spike economic growth because of, of productivity. They're, they're not about to buy the you know, $100 million piece of equipment that makes the massive factory super productive. Right. Right. Yeah. No, I get it. It doesn't lift neighborhoods and it doesn't, and it doesn't, and it doesn't create the kind well, of, the kind well, of em, the, other employment I'm, I'm that we would think of more, naturally in growth or tax bases for growth. Yeah. I, mean, I am going to make you uh, ask you to be a little more generous to what it can do in neighborhoods. Okay. I know some people get concerned, oh, my neighbors are running a business out of their house. But there is something healthy for families and neighborhoods to see the entrepreneurial spirit. Uh, I do believe it has a cultural positive effect. Of course it does. Of course it does. But one of the things that I think we really need to get back to if we're going to start getting our hands around this is some soft medicine and some hard medicine. And on the hard one, I think we really do need to take a look at the at welfare reform once again as we did it in 1996 and then let it slip. Because I think it is upside down that we have so many people on unemployment but so few people looking for work. It's it's It really needs to be addressed, I think, at a very serious level concrete, physical, legislative level? Um, the answer is yes, but you need to think far beyond um, the mid-90s welfare reform. Okay. Um, remember, the welfare reform of the mid-90s, even though it was amazingly effective at reducing poverty and getting people back into the workforce, and, and a lot of the groups out there um, that opposed it really should apologize to President Clinton and the Republican Congress. Yeah. But it really was only like AFDC. That's you know, right. The, That's right. You know, it was actually very small. Um, my pitch would be it needs to be much more global, okay. whether it be the way we do um, you know, uh, uh, you know, sort of the, uh, you know, the child tax care yep. credits mm-hmm. or the way we do almost everything else, even yep. subsidies for health insurance. Yep. How do you look at the global package of benefits and use that as a way of saying these are ways where 
you were stabilizing poverty. We want to grow prosperity. They need to be delivered in a different way to maximize economic growth and opportunity instead of minimizing misery. And, and, and those take two very different approaches in how you deliver benefits. You're absolutely right, David, on that. And it is a 25-year-old law, but, that, but, but it got slowly eviscerated. But I think the principles inherent that you want to expand universally – is that your word? I think it was. Yeah. That you want to expand to other areas and other programs. I think, I, I think that's what we really need to revisit uh, in, 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 in a big way because I, I do not, along with you, think that um, the Democrats right now – at least the Biden White House dem- uh, Democrats right now have any concept about what's going on oh, with the unemployment situation. Had, in, in the Joint Economic Committee a couple of weeks ago, the Democrat Ph.D. professor witness, she said this crazy thing. Saying, well, I don't think it's necessarily fair that you ask people to have to work. Right. Shouldn't be someone's right to be able to get this assistance, these checks and not have to work. Right. And she was serious. Yep. She wasn't joking. Nope. Yep. And, and to the credit, even a couple of the Democrats on the committee are, are, are just, you could see they were frozen saying, okay, and these are the witnesses mm-hmm. that they're bringing to the economic committee mm-hmm. that's supposed to fixate on budgets and economic growth. So it gives you an idea how radicalized the left base has become. Well, that's the other point I want to spend time with you on next time we have you in studio. That's another big one. I don't think people realize uh, exactly that very point. I don't think they realize that the mainstream of the Democratic Party has moved so far left. There's a new set point, and it, it's not one where most people are used to dealing with. But that is their thinking. What you just said they testified to, I've, I hear, that, is the Demo- that is now the center of the Democratic Party, David. Mm-hmm. But how many people listening right now will ever force themselves to go spend an hour watching MSNBC or CNN tonight or sometime this week and truly get a sense of that, you know. I, I have a good answer to that question. I have a really good answer to that question. More yeah, remember, m- more because they heard you talk about it here. Well, but, but it will drive you insane. But understand, they say what satiates their audience because they need to keep their audience to make money. Mm -hmm. And so they're not saying crazy things. They're saying the things that make their audience um, keep watching. Yep. And so that means the crazy you're watching on MSNBC, that's the base of where the Democrat Party is. David, well said. Safe travels, happy and healthy holiday, and we'll pick it up next week. Hey, the same to you, and say hi to the family. Bless you, sir. I'm Seth Liebson. He's David Schweiker. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show, 602-508-0960. Back to the um, the quote uh, that is so on my mind these days, especially as we go into the holiday of Thanksgiving, Milan Kunderas, the the Czech writer, uh, once upon a time from Czechoslovakia. It's always important when when you read these writers to know a little bit about their country and the perspective they're writing from. He watched his country disappear. That's why the quote I'm about to read you, I believe, is so poignant. Quote, the first step in liquidating a people is to erase its memory, destroy its books, its culture, its history. 
and then have somebody write new books, manufacture a new culture, invent a new history. Before long, the nation will begin to forget what it is and what it was. And it's quite something to talk about American history textbook wars, critical race theory, wars, battles, whatever the word is you want to use. But what about these sacrosanct or even something less than sacrosanct holidays like Thanksgiving, which in, an, in, in a moment that we're living in, in an era that we're living in of great tension, great divide, even amongst friends and family, that we now have to inject problems. We now have to inject cynicism, doubt, and hatred even into the celebration of Thanksgiving. We have to inject guilt into it. It's not a Thanksgiving. It's a day of mourning. See how many news stories have that headline. Too many is the answer. We grew up in a different world where, well, you know, I just, a a different world that I want to talk to you about seriously and give you some, some, some insight on about things that, that make it very easy to just, to just celebrate not only this country, but Thanksgiving. And I'm going to do it in the next segment uh, because the time constraints in this segment will cause me to interrupt what I want to read to you. But for at least a generation, young children grew up with this message from Charles Schultz on Thanksgiving. It was Linus. And people can dismiss it if they want to. But there was an important cultural aspect to this thing that Linus said. And the import, part of the import, is that it got children interested in learning about what he was saying or at least knowing what he was saying. And what he was saying, have your opinion if you want about the prayer itself, but the history is absolutely true. It's not assailable. It's not controversial. Well, it is controversial, but it's true. Go ahead, Bill. In the year 1621, the pilgrims held their first Thanksgiving feast. They invited the great Indian chief, Massasoit, who brought 90 of his brave Indians and a great abundance of food. Governor William Bradford and Captain Miles Standish were honored guests. Elder William Brewster, who was a minister, said a prayer that went something like this. We thank God for our homes and our food and our safety in a new land. We thank God for the opportunity to create a new world for freedom and justice. Amen. Yeah, that was the prayer. That was the history. And now we're supposed to mourn. Now we're supposed to mourn. Those are the cynics and the dampers for you. Don't mourn. Be grateful. A good friend of this show's sent me line from G.K. Chesterton, I would maintain that thanks are the highest form of thought and that gratitude is happiness doubled by wonder. Be right back. By the way, just a quick programming note. At the top of the next hour, we're going to have the great Alex Berenson joining us on the myths and facts. I bet a lot of people are going to be facing a lot of myths over the next 48 hours or have been with family members. It's 
it's it's it's something that can be preordained when you have sites as I have seen uh, with uh, full of advice columns uh, how to handle non-vaxed family members at Thanksgiving. That's just lovely, isn't it? How to handle non-vaxed family members at Thanksgiving? Wonderful. Uh, okay, let's talk about uh, the uh, the effort to uh, asunder Thanksgiving. Michael Medved, remember Michael? He's 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 uh, not have doesn't have his regular show on this platform anymore, but he's still writing and he's still active and he is a tremendously great historian. He writes that you only need two numbers in mind as you go into your Thanksgiving celebration. You only need two magical numbers to remember. Have you heard this before, Bill? First magical number is fifty-three. Fifty-three. It counts the English settlers who survived the hardships of their first New England winter to participate in their now famous expression of gratitude that Linus was speaking of. Nearly half of the 102 passengers who arrived on the Mayflower after a 66-day voyage died from punishing cold, hunger, digestive ailments, and scurvy. The conditions proved especially lethal for women of the 18 wives who made the journey, 13 died before they could join their neighbors in celebrating the harvest. In the flimsy village of Plymouth, only three families remained untouched by the constant mourning. It's no wonder the hardy few who made it through the freezing and the dying saw something providential, even miraculous, in the survival of their lonely, beleaguered settlement. This may be strong stuff for youngsters to swallow while savoring a lavish banquet, but it's important to counteract the storybook version of the pilgrim's errand into the wilderness as a thrilling road trip full of benign surprises and crowned with epic success. It wasn't. In other words, while the English arrivals may have benefited from certain privileges of their society, they still endured more than their fair share of suffering, a factor that should earn them sympathy and respect from present-day skeptics who otherwise deride their undertaking. 53, that's your first number, the number of settlers who survived from the passenger ship Mayflower that started with 102. That's the first number. The second number to remember is 90. 90, the actual total number of Indian braves who arrived unexpectedly to join their settler friends in their harvest feast. The occasion cemented a treaty alliance that lasted for more than 50 years. Those who want to stress the brutal conflicts between settlers and indigenous tribes can provide no easy explanation for the friendly conduct of the Wampanoag warriors who dramatically outnumbered the Mayflower survivors, but feasted with them for three days. And even a little deer that provided most of the meat for the joint meal, instead of making short work of the interlopers. Instead of this benign reality, some sources have circulated a bogus story that the bloodthirsty pilgrims declared their religious thanksgiving to thank heaven for the slaughter of hundreds of tribesmen. Nonsense. That's another state much later. Nothing having to do with the first thanksgiving. What's more? The Wampanoags and their great chief Massasoit did fight on that occasion later. They absolutely did in what became known as a slaughter. But guess who they fought with? 
us, the pilgrims. They fought with the pilgrims. They fought with the pilgrims against other Indian tribes, against another Indian tribe in Mystic, Connecticut. See, this is the thing about history. It's not, as the proponents of CRT, even though they claim that it's not CRT, it's not that the proponents of CRT are right, that we don't want to teach this history. We totally do. We totally do. It's they who don't want to teach it. It's they who want to distort it. It's they who want iconoclasm. It ain't us taking down statues of people we want to learn from and about. It's them. It ain't us censoring and banning books. It's them. It ain't us rewriting history and creating newfangled concepts that were nowhere in existence in the heads, the minds, or the souls of the people who were making history. It's them. It's them. If you want an ally or an amicus brief on teaching the full American story, I'm here. I'd like to think I've already written it. I'm Seth, 602-508-0960. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Leapson Show. As I mentioned last hour, as obviously is in the news, uh, the uh, the trial uh, in Georgia for the um, three men accused of killing Ahmed Arbery were all found guilty of murder. From the best of uh, my following of the case, it looks like um, justice was done there, just as it looks like to me justice was done in the Kyle Rittenhouse acquittal. It's interesting, isn't it? You can correct me if I'm wrong, that there's a more universal opinion about justice having been done in the death of Ahmed Arbery, in the aftermath of his, of his killing, in, 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 in bringing these three men to justice. And I don't know if it's because it didn't involve... I, I, I don't quite understand. I don't quite understand why there's not the same universal view of justice regarding Ahmed Arbery as there is the same universal view about justice and Kyle Rittenhouse. I don't understand that. I don't get why people were angry that Kyle Rittenhouse was exonerated and people are celebrating when the murders of Ahmed Arbery were found and convicted guilty. it's It's obviously an unhealthy thing. But I suppose it has something to do with the fact that one was politicized for a narrative and one wasn't. Neither should have been politicized for a narrative. Neither should have been. Neither should have been. Neither of those incidences of tremendous violence should have been plagued by people wishing for an outcome in the courtroom or harassment of jurors or harassment of people because they believed in the guilt of the men who killed Arbery and the innocence of Rittenhouse. 
it's 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 disturbing to me to see people rooting and cheering for that kind of thing. Things we didn't used to root and cheer for. Things we didn't used to root and cheer for. Sighs of relief are much more appropriate after loss of life and jury verdict. Sighs of relief. Because while it shows in a complicated country, which I suppose in one way or another every country is, but it shows in this complicated country that there are certain balance beams that we rely upon. The most important one to this one is justice. Justice. That's why the Bible invokes justice twice. Justice, justice shall thou seek. The ends of justice and the means of justice. And they shouldn't be angles, and they shouldn't be politicized, and they shouldn't be turning America against itself and inside out over race wars when they prove exactly what this week proved. What did this week prove in these two trials? It proved that you can achieve it. It proved that you can have a fair outcome to a trial. It proved that you can take your redress of tremendous grievance into a courtroom and have a fair hearing on matters of justice that courts were designed for. And all the rioting that took place last year turns out to have been a multi-billion dollar tremendous loss of life, business, income, and money waste of time, life, business, and money, and air. Because it was over the fact that there would not be justice in the killing, in that case, of George Floyd. And yet this country wanted so much before the rioting to give justice, to engage in the conversation about better and safer policing practices, and better and safer communications with communities that felt under siege, either from fellow citizens or the state, or the apparatuses and appurtenances of the state. But a rush to judgment was made by a cause and concern that only operates, only operates by virtue of crisis by virtue of permanent revolution. In this case, Marxist doctrine and a Marxist movement that hoodwinked so many calm and otherwise sober minds to join the cry that led to so much further loss of life in all those riots that were at best, at best, unnecessary. You take these riots out of the equation and you can get a just verdict. You can get a just verdict. And and enough with the racial profiling, even if the person being tried or being convicted or being exonerated himself was guilty or innocent of it. That's not what justice is about. Justice is about finding whether a law or a right was violated or not. And the jury of peers 
in both cases, in both the Arbery murderer's case and in the case of Rittenhouse, was prejudged. Prejudged. For what? Having too many whites on the jury in both cases. You can go back and read the articles if you don't believe me, particularly the Arbery case. Eleven white people on that jury of 12 in the Arbery case. And it was being prejudged throughout. His murderers will never be brought to justice in that situation. Guess what they were? Because you know what? We still believe here, and more than believe it, it's still true here. That race should not and does not. No matter what the Smithsonian says, no matter what your woke governments tell you, race should not and does not dictate thought. It doesn't predict thought and it doesn't dictate thought. That's the lesson we should draw yet again and again and again and again because we seem to have to remind people that what took place at Nuremberg and everything surrounding the ideology inherent therein was not something about which we could say never again. We could not. Will we now go into a sea of calm over this? I don't know. I don't know. Already we're whitewashing history in our very, before our very eyes. You know what the Wikipedia page says about the parade? Massacre in Waukesha. You know what the Wikipedia title of it is? Parade accident. Parade crash. Parade incident. It was a massacre. And the folks at Wikipedia won't let you know that. Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show. There's my friend Robin. Surprise! Hello, Rob. How are you, sir? I am. I am fine, sir. And I have to give you my humble apologies for not being able to make the uh, event last weekend. We were overtaken by uh, animal and uh, home event that kept us from coming out, and so uh, we'll we'll still do a rain check on whatever the next event. May oh, be. you bet. Yeah, we we do. What do we do, Bill? Two a year like that? Something we aim for something like two events like that a year. We'll we'll do yeah, we'll do more. But, you bet. But again, I'm 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 sincerely sorry for not being able to get there because we really wanted to go. Um, anyway, and this is sort of related. To, well, there's a couple of things. Um, the the Waukesha guy who, uh, and you had just mentioned it. You know, incident or accident or something or. What, it, what we think of it as a massacre. There, right uh, now, Darryl Wikipedia Brooks. is calling it a crash. A crash. Yeah. Yeah, there you go. Very passive. Daryl Brooks, Brooks was his name. And what's interesting is that you probably recall uh, Kyle Rittenhouse wasn't allowed to have a GoFundMe uh, account uh-huh. to help pay for his legal expenses. Well, guess who does? Oh, is that Darryl right? Brooks. That's correct. Is that right? You know, we had that uh, with the students at ASU who were uh, thrown out of the Multicultural Center for being of the wrong race. They couldn't do a GoFundMe yeah. page. But guess who did? Yeah. The people who threw them out. Yeah, and, and I just I just find that amazing. But I'm, I'm hoping, again, that, that Kyle can 
You know, Quad-licit jovi, non-licit bovi. What's good for the uh, gods is not what is good for the swine. Uh, exactly. I, I caught bovine. I thought maybe that was a, a cow, but mm-hmm. uh, swine. It, it, you're swine actually work. right. You're actually right. <laughs> you're actually right. <laughs> now, the other thing, and this is something most people aren't even talking about, is, is this whole strategic oil reserve. Yeah, what are we here. opening up, two days' worth? Something like that? Uh, about about two and a half days' yeah, worth. Yeah, okay. So, okay. you know, we, ha- we have these four big underground, underwater uh, reserves of about 600-some million gallons of, uh, of oil, and apparently the other countries, well, yeah, first of all, he, he wants to release, well, I guess Secretary Granholm, the uh, energy secretary, uh, thinks this is great and it's going to help. Well, she needs to know how much oil Americans consume. She doesn't know the answer to that. Your energy secretary does not know that answer. No, she doesn't. But then what Joe Biden did, I guess, was they opened up the emergency reserves that'll buy two days. You know, playing with Americans' pocketbooks like that and the energy sector like that for political purposes because your polls are falling and people are getting angry about it because it is your policies that are creating these economic conditions in the first place. I, I got to tell you, I dirty politics, I don't know. Uh, insincere politics, I don't know. Maybe we should go back to the word David Schweikert was using. Uncompassionate. They are the uncompassionate party. We have Alex Berenson coming right up. He'll help us with myths and facts. You'll want him. His new book, Pandemia, How Coronavirus Hysteria Took Over Our Government Rights and Lives. We'll be right back. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com. <laughs> 